Hi, this is Aaron Ross Powell, and it's been a while. Everyone's on coronavirus lockdown, and I've put together a recording setup at home so I can continue to record my other shows. So I figured it was a good time to bring back this far too long dormant podcast. For my first episode, I've invited on my friend and colleague Jason Kuznicki to talk about Buddhism. I started by asking him what it is about Buddhism he finds so appealing. Uh, I think that the appeal to me is not necessarily one everybody's going to share, but I've found it to be really liberating to be able to explore a religion in a way that is very personal. And it's also a bit of an intellectual puzzle because there are parts of Buddhism that seem like they're necessarily true and they just have to be true and things can't be any other way uh, in any universe I could possibly imagine. But then there are other things about Buddhism that are mind boggling and I don't know what to make of. And so I've been trying to, I guess, intellectually engage with all of it. And what I've, what I've found is that at a certain point, the intellectual engagement gave way to something more like a, a straightforward belief that I, I found that I actually just, I, I believe the things that are necessarily true and the things that are, are mind boggling or, or hard to understand uh, they've taken on a different character too for me they've taken on uh, i think something more like the character of a faith that that raises kind of an interesting question for people who are just getting into it or at least curious about it because i know both of us came to it i mean we both are atheists um and didn't come to it from a background of like strong other religious faith, at least not not at the time that we discovered it. Um, and and I know that when I first got into it, my approach to it was as a set of ancient ethics, right? Like I had read a lot of the ancient Greeks. I'd read a lot of Aristotle and Aristotle continues to influence my moral and ethical thinking to a great deal. Um, and and when I read when I read Aristotle, like there are things in it, there are metaphysical claims that he makes um, that I don't accept. He has he believes things about the state of the universe and the things that are in it that I and modern science no longer or no longer think would be true, right? Um, and that's fine because it's it's philosophy. But as you said, like Buddhism is you called it a religion, and for most people who are into it, it is a religion. And does that does that religious nature of it? complicate things coming to it from a skeptics or um the the standpoint of someone who doesn't accept other religious beliefs and and that as you said there are parts of it that there are core truths that you kind of have to accept for it to be for it to be buddhism and then there are extraordinary claims that you're not sure what to do with and does the picking and choosing in there <clears throat> bother you from the perspective of approaching it as a religion and are they is the necessity of doing that make Buddhism like less useful potentially as a philosophy in the way that say Aristotelianism might be to people who aren't willing to accept things on faith? Well, yeah, you can, you can say that the, the, the philosophical project is complicated by the religious faith aspect of it. Certainly. I mean, that's, uh, there's no question about that. 
Uh, I would say, though, that at least in my own life, I've found that things make sense in a different way when it is viewed as a religion and when I just sort of accept that it is one. Uh, one, of the, one of the criticisms of, of Buddhism in the West is that it's trying to be all things to all people. It's a religion, but really people say, oh, it's just mind science. Well, you can't really have it be both ways. If it's a religion, then you are, you are accepting things on faith. If it's uh, mind science, you're not allowed to do that. If it's a religion, then you can say I've had this subjective experience that validates what I'm saying. If it's a mind science, then that subjective experience needs to be tested in ways that religious belief does not ask for. Uh, as far as picking and choosing within the various Buddhist traditions, and, and there are a lot of them, uh, that's something that I think every believer of every religion actually does. The fundamentalist is also someone who picks and chooses. They also have an interpretive framework that they bring to the question, and they also reject some religious claims. Uh, there's no one who just straightforwardly believes a religion. Everyone has a complicated relationship to a big jumble of of uh, assertions uh, contained within a religion and uh, nobody who's actually been a part of a religion, I think, uh, and thought about it seriously can say otherwise. We all, uh, we all uh, pick and choose within our religious traditions. What do you mean by Buddhism being a religion in this context? Like how is, how is being a Buddhist of, the, of a practicing sort different from, say, being like Stoicism is very hot right now? And a lot of people, there's a lot of interesting comparisons between Buddhism and Stoicism, a lot of interesting similarities. But we typically don't think of someone who says, like, I'm a Stoic as having the religion of Stoicism. We don't, although there are certainly examples in ancient Greek thought that were uh, religions and philosophies. So the Pythagoreans appear to have been exactly that. Uh, Someone might make a religion out of the thought of Plato. There have been various attempts here and there to do that, both in the ancient Greek world and, and possibly even during the Renaissance. Uh, but uh, what, I, what I mean by religion is that there is an idea of the sacred to it, an idea of things taking place that are... Uh, distinct from one's ordinary profane experience. Uh, That doesn't necessarily entail the existence of gods. Uh, The Buddha does not appear to demand uh, praise or worship or tribute to gods, which is something that Western religions generally do, but uh, that doesn't disqualify it from being a religion. In the Pali Canon, at least, uh, the Buddha talks a lot with gods and argues with them, and typically he gets the better of them, uh, which is an interesting place to find a human, I guess. Uh, but uh, 
nonetheless, there is the idea that certain activities are of a kind of transcendent importance, that, uh, that these activities are, are sacred, uh, that they are, they are set apart uh, because they do participate in a kind of higher life. And uh, that's that's the sort of claim that a a modern day sort of skeptical philosopher would say perhaps doesn't have any intelligible meaning, but uh, as a way of of treating or organizing one's lived experience, uh, I find that it surprised me by making a lot of intuitive sense. Yeah, and I think that's part of. It. To answer the question, for me to answer the question that I opened this with of what's the appeal, um, the thing when I when I first encountered Buddhism and started reading, like say reading the early texts, um, and I was reading them as philosophy, as I said, in the same way that I would read like the ancient Greeks, was there was a there's a theoretical component to this. Obviously, there's there's various like interesting philosophical and metaphysical claims being made, and so on. Um, and but there's also a practice side to it, and so we can talk a bit about like what that that core belief of, of Buddhism is. But at its core, what it is is it's it's a guy who said I've identified what I see as kind of the the key problem of human existence, which is suffering. Like we're all we all suffer in various ways, and I've identified that, and I'm going to set out to solve it to figure out how to end suffering in my own life. Um, and and according to the texts, he did. And then he proceeded to say, and this is a, a method, the method that I have discovered, which is a set of beliefs coupled with a set of practices, is something other people can do as well. Um, and so I'm going to teach them how to do it. And and what that meant was that I think Buddhism, and this is what sets it apart from <clears throat> some of the other ancient philosophies, at least the way it articulated, although Stoicism has has more of this, um, is that there's this practical side to it. It's like, okay, here's the here's these steps that you're going to take in your life, the actual activities that you are going to engage in, in order to accomplish what my theory says is the thing that you ought to be accomplishing. And for me, the appeal of it is in that that kind of all-encompassingness of it that that these the basic claims that buddhism makes about the causes of suffering i think i largely think are true or accurate um and and then the process that it gives you for overcoming them is one that is doable it's practical um, and it's specific enough that I can say, like, okay, I'm going to try to make this part of my day-to-day -day life, which I think is what what sets it apart from a lot of other, like, someone who is more used to studying moral and ethical philosophy is operates at that theoretical level, but but the Buddhism brings with it this set of activities that you can engage in, and what I have found and the appeal for me then is that when I have put those into practice in my own life and been relatively rigorous about this, and my level of rigor goes up and down quite a lot, but when I've actually been putting the effort in, I have noticed 
positive changes in my own life. And so it's not simply that I think that the set of claims being made are largely true, but that when I act upon them, I feel better, happier, all of the things that one would hope to get out of it. Yes, yes. Uh, you're you're uh, emphasizing a somewhat different uh, view of what a religion is than uh, I did in my comments. I was thinking mostly about uh, the organization of of time and of concepts into sacred and profane, and mm-hmm. and uh, that as a fundamental difference uh, in in religious ways of thinking. You are emphasizing something I think is also uh, a very good framework for for thinking about religion which is that it is a communal practice that uh, it's not just that this one guy figured out how to live a life that doesn't cause him suffering uh, he claimed that anyone could do it and asked others to join him if they wanted and if they wanted to get rid of suffering he said hey i can help you with that and uh, there, there's even a, a very distinct moment in the uh, standard narrative of the life of the Buddha where he considers that the way that he's found is long and difficult and subtle, and, and it's not something that necessarily everybody is going to be able to do, and it's going to be hard to teach. And he thinks to himself, well, maybe I, I shouldn't teach this. Maybe I should just abide without suffering for this lifetime and that will be enough and uh if you believe the legend uh, his uh doubts about this are dispelled when the god brahma says hey you need to teach this to humanity there are some people who will understand there are some people who will be able to get it and what developed from that conversation is that the Buddha went out and tried to find people who would follow him, and he obviously succeeded. Again, coming at this from so I, I keep coming back to being like a, a skeptic or an atheist. Like I was not looking for this when I discovered it. I suppose, it, and what I mean by that is, I wasn't someone who didn't have a religion and then said, you know, I would really like one, and so I'm going to go out and. You know, I'll explore different ones that are available and figure it out. Um, I wasn't looking for that sort of thing. It was more I discovered, I explored a different philosophical tradition, became convinced by it, decided to try putting it into practice, and then discovered that I was getting enough value out of it to, in my own life, make it look more like a religious practice. Um, but but one of the one of the conflicts that i have is that i maintain my kind of metaphysical skepticism and so there are things that are, seem to be central to buddhism that i don't i guess believe to be true and and one of the concerns that i sometimes have in my own practice or as i get further into this and you know my family is now members of a a Buddhist temple that we go to, at least we were going to every week until coronavirus said we probably shouldn't. But um, as I get further into it is is how much 
I can say I'm a a Buddhist in the the practicing sense, while remaining skeptical about things that are really core to Buddhism, or if not skeptical about them, at least confused about what they mean in the sense that if interpreted in some ways, I think they're probably not true. And if interpreted in others, I think maybe they're not they're not quite as what actual Buddhists have in mind with them. And so for example, I'm thinking of like rebirth, which is really central to this because I mean, when we talk about the suffering, um, the simple suffering that the Buddha claimed to be trying to end was the cycles of rebirth, that we were born and died and were reborn because there was this suffering going on. And by ending suffering, we're ending this cycle. Um, and you can simply like you can judge success by having ended the cycle of rebirth. And I don't think I believe in rebirth, but as you and I have talked about a lot over the last several years, I'm not even quite sure that I know what it means. Yes, uh, there are a lot of different ideas of rebirth, and it's a difficult concept in any sense for a lot of Westerners to to uh, come to terms with. One of the things that really quickly becomes apparent when you read the stories from the Buddha's own time is that everyone believed in rebirth at that time and place. That uh, if you were not a Buddhist, if you'd never heard of the Buddha before, and the Buddha comes to your town and talks to you, he might very well talk to you about rebirth. And you'll be like, yes, there's rebirth. And the Buddha will say, do you want to escape it? And you'll say, well, yeah, actually. Uh, and that's often uh, you know, it's a common motif in, in, in the conversion narratives that the people at that time believed in rebirth, but they did not have the set of methods for escaping it. And that was the specific distinctive thing that the Buddha gave them. So there are a lot of different ways that a Westerner can can begin to approach this. And uh, one of them that I think is especially fruitful is, is to say that rebirth is a kind of consequence. That uh, a lot of times when uh, Buddhism says rebirth, what they mean is the consequence of your action. And so the, to the degree that you identify with your own actions, to the degree that you say, my actions are myself, then the consequences of your actions are your rebirth. So if I uh, throw litter on the side of the road, <clears throat> that litter will eventually make its way into the Potomac River, and eventually it will go out to sea, and maybe the straw that I threw on the side of the road will get stuck up a turtle's nose. and that turtle, in a sense, is my rebirth because of the bad action that I took. Uh, you know, again, before coronavirus, I would commonly go around and pick up trash. I would, I, whenever I go out for uh, jogging, I would take a trash bag with me and just pick up other people's trash. Why? Because I don't want to be reborn, if you will, uh, as a turtle with a straw stuck up his nose. Uh, now, this is very metaphorical. I don't literally believe that some essence from me will magically turn into a turtle or that there's some great sorting machine in the sky that takes my soul and 
you know, performs some calculations to figure out where it goes and you know, sends it that way. But I do believe that actions have consequences and that being attentive to them is, is uh, an essential thing for living a good life. And uh, the Buddhist culture talked about that as rebirth. So, so that's sort of how I understand it. Um, does that, though, how does that work then with nirvana, the, the end goal of all of this being ending the cycle of rebirth? Because if, if rebirth is simply there are ongoing consequences or effects from the things that I have done in my life, I mean, right now you and I are having a conversation about Buddhism because the Buddha, who presumably was enlightened and achieved nirvana and so therefore was not reborn, took certain actions that down through the thousands of years continue to influence lots of people, including us to this day and right now recording this podcast – and so that would seem like he hasn't didn't he been reborn? It. Yes. Well, there is a a sutta in the Pali Canon which speaks exactly to this, and I don't recall I don't recall the name or location of it, but uh, it's very clear that there are certain questions in Buddhism that you're just not supposed to ask about, and one of them is. Does a fully realized being, does a being who's attained nirvana have another life afterward or not. And I think the reason that they said that is because uh, of exactly the objection that you raise that, that you could view, you could view consequences that are good uh, as the kind of, of rebirth that you're talking about. And, and that sets up a dilemma. You can't say, well, yes, because of this, and you can't say no. Also, because of this, it's it's a mystery, and I don't know how I feel about that. That's one area where I'm not really sure what to say. So uh, I'm leaving that one alone for now. Does it ultimately? I mean, so if if we take our Buddhism, my Buddhism, your Buddhism, as practices that we have in our daily lives that we we believe and believe we benefit from. Does it really matter? Like, so the way that I guess the way that I think about rebirth and some of the similar sorts of metaphysical claims is um, ending rebirth was the way that they saw it was kind of the sign of success in ending suffering. Like, if you truly ended suffering, then you would rebirth would end for you. Okay. But even if I don't believe that there is rebirth or i think that um that a buddhist conception of rebirth is maybe more robust in a metaphysical sense than the ongoing causes version that you gave and and i'm not willing to accept that i can in my daily life in my daily practice simply say i don't i guess i don't really care i can bracket that question because if whether it happens or not, if the things that I am doing right now have the effect of also reducing my suffering in this life, then that makes them pretty valuable. And I don't need to I don't need to worry about what happens. Well, yes, reducing suffering is valuable, and we, we should definitely talk about that because uh, I feel like maybe we haven't 
covered that very basic part of, sure. so of what Buddhism. Is, and so people are probably Buddhism sitting here saying, suffering? well, we, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? <laughs> yeah, so how do you do it? And what is when, – when Buddhists talk about suffering, what do they have in mind? Because they've got something pretty specific in mind, at least in terms of the causes of it. They do. They do. Suffering is an intrinsic part of of the life of what's called samsara, which is is ordinary life for most of of all of us. And what they mean by suffering being a part of of life intrinsically is that some things are painful, and that's suffering. Some things are pleasurable, and they might not seem like suffering at first. However, you can't always have everything that you want. You can't have those pleasurable things last forever. They always, always expire. They always change and go away and die. And because of that, even pleasurable things bring suffering. So what do you do? Do you grab the pleasurable things even harder? Well, that's not helpful. Do you try to push away the painful things even harder? They're going to happen anyway. It doesn't matter. Sooner or later, something horrible will happen to you because we all die. So clearly a different relationship is required between the experiencer and the experience. Something else is required. And the thing that's required is non-attachment, non-clinging to that which we want, and a kind of a kind of uh, ironic engagement with life. That well, there are things that I want, and I want what I want. I also recognize that participating in the struggle to get what I want inevitably brings suffering, and that the harder I cling to a thing that cannot be, the more I will suffer. Does this necessarily mean that like the ideal Buddhist lifestyle is bland or detached? So what I mean by that is back back when I was in college as an undergrad, um, a friend of mine was taking a literature course and they read Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha. And she asked she had to write a paper on it and she asked me to read it as well to talk with her about it and i did and this was i had knew nothing about buddhism at this point so this that book was like the first thing that i had you know read that was buddhist or buddhist adjacent and i remember really disliking the book and i keep thinking i should go back and reread it now to see if you know how much my opinion of it has changed but i had a had a very negative reaction to it and that negative reaction was driven by what felt like a i guess um turn on tune in drop out attitude of ultimately the thing to do in life is to sit by yourself not become attached to anything, give up all of the the stuff that in your prior life you had loved or desired or wanted or wanted to maintain and and just kind of sit back and let things pass you by. Um, and that felt I guess almost like anti-human. Is it too quietist? Is it too uh, uh 
withdrawing, you know, is it too much about withdrawing from the world and not engaging? Right. I mean, part um, of so much of what makes life like this amazing thing is, you know, like falling deeply in love, having children and loving them and, you know, being willing to sacrifice yourself for them. Like these things seem like they really matter. And is Buddhism saying, no, 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 those are attachments. Those are craving. Those are the source of suffering. You need to give all of that up because if that's the case, that seems like maybe a problem or at least something that we might want to be worried about. You put me a little bit on the spot because I haven't read Siddhartha, but uh, this is a question about Buddhism that comes up in a lot of different contexts. And uh, I don't think that the answer is necessarily complete disengagement with the world. Uh, there are ways of life that the Buddha recommends which are not disengaged with the world, but actually are, are quite engaged with it. Uh, the Buddha seems to have, have contemplated that there'd be two kinds of followers of his teaching. One would be monastic, and these, these people would certainly give up a great deal in the way of, of sense pleasures and enjoyments and money and political power and uh, sex and all of the rest. But that was one way of following his teaching. There's another way, which is to be a Buddhist layperson who still lives in the world, still may have a family and love them very deeply and, and yes, in a sense, be attached to them, but also recognize that there is always a price to be paid for those attachments. The uh, Buddha was once challenged about exactly this point. Uh, is it not the case that children bring pleasure? Can't I take pleasure in watching my children grow up? And the Buddha said children are a, a, an attachment. They are a fetter. They are a source of suffering as well as of pleasure. And you must learn to see them as as such. And that's a very hard truth. That's something that is 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 very difficult for us to accept. We don't want to accept it, but I do think that that can certainly be the case as a parent. I, I have got to admit it. Now, maybe I don't want my daughter listening to this, but yeah, sometimes she does cause me suffering. Yes. I, as having been stuck in the house for over a week now with my three children who are home from school and my house is not very big. Um, yes, sometimes they can at least be an aggravation. And and worse than that, I mean, we don't, as parents, want to talk about this, but we worry about our children tremendously. And we are concerned about their well-being. And yes, that may lead us to do great things to to raise them perhaps but it also is is a source of anxiety it is a source of anxiety that we might have to worry about our kid having a terrible illness or getting beaten up at recess or dying and no parent ever wants to face that eventuality but once you are a parent it's something that you know is always possible. 
and I think you can it's it's possible to approach this from the perspective of trade-offs and as you said like there's there's a certain set of standards for a monastic and I'm not a monastic and don't have a desire to become a monastic and and I think you can you can think about it as here's here's a set of tools for alleviating suffering um now do with them as you see fit and and there certainly is there's a lot of so this this underlying diagnosis that that suffering seems to come from us like clinging to trying to make permanent things that are necessarily transitory or impermanent it has a, a huge amount of intuitive truth that we you know when we're in pain we desperately want that pain to go away we want to return to the state that it wasn't there um when we were craving for things like we we want more stuff and we imagine that that stuff will make us happy in some sort of ongoing way when we have stuff we worry about losing it and that's a worry that causes suffering um that that basic diagnosis seems largely correct that our our clingingness our graspingness for things in this unhealthy way is is a chief source of suffering in our lives and and i think that before we get to any of the hard questions of family and those those kind of core human loves and desires um there's a lot of good that we can do in our own lives by just getting rid of the unnecessary stuff the stuff that's not core the stuff that yeah like we can we can see we'd be better off not clinging to not grasping at um and maybe maybe a hardcore convinced buddhist would say okay but by unless you're willing to apply that same detachment to everything else you're never going to get fully there but for me at least getting fully there is not necessarily where I, I like I am I am comfortable getting part of the way there because it will benefit me dramatically, and I can say and there comes a point where I'm not simply not willing to make the trade offs and maybe maybe it's because I'm not full like I haven't seen these core truths the level that I should or but but for whatever reason like I'm not comfortable making those trade offs and I guess I'm okay with that. Well, a, a fully convinced Buddhist might also say two additional things first. If you're doing as you say, then you are preparing yourself for better rebirths. And you can interpret that however you want, as we said, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the second the second thing that a, a truly convinced Buddhist might say is that the Buddha emphasized that this is a gradual process. It is not something that is going to happen instantly to everyone. It might happen instantly to a few people. It happens instantly to a few people in the canon. But to most people, this is a process that will take a very long time. It might take your whole lifetime. It might take many lifetimes. And so you don't need to feel rushed about it. You don't need to feel like you have to get into heaven before you die. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, it's not like cramming for a test like in you know, some some views of Christianity. It's much more. It's much more about making sure that you get a long, gradual process right, and it it can't always be rushed because, at least as as one would say, from a very traditional Buddhist standpoint, you have karma that you have to work through. You have an accumulated stock of associations and attachments and commitments that have come to your life 
and that can't easily be discharged, but that will eventually be discharged in their own good time. I, I think it's also possible too to look at this like the the very stark kind of absolutist version of it um, as having value even if I don't actually have a desire to get there, even if it involves trade-offs I'm not willing to make or I just don't have the the fortitude, the gumption to to do it. Um, and and it's similar to in so in political philosophy and moral philosophy, there's there's this debate between like uh, like about ideal theory, which is an ideal theory in like political philosophy would be what is like you know the ideal conception of justice, like justice in a perfect world. What would it look like? What would a perfect government institution look like? And we're going to assume away all of the nasty business of the real world that people, you know, make mistakes or aren't willing to do the hard stuff or whatever. We're going to assume all that away. What is like the perfect conception look like? And and there's an ongoing debate about, is there any value in that? Like, what's the point of theorizing about worlds that are effectively impossible to reach? And I think one of the values, and this is a similar value to this, this absolutist conception of Buddhist end to suffering, is a clarity in what we're aiming at. That even if I know that I can never reach this thing or that I don't want to ultimately reach it, having a very clear picture of it, of what it entails, makes it easier for me to figure out which directions point towards it. Whereas sure, a, a much the- more nuanced and limited one doesn't provide as much guidance. It's like a it's like a dimmer lighthouse. And 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 the worst kind of suffering is the suffering that seems absolutely senseless. If you take any given instance of suffering and you have no account for why it happened and it seems completely arbitrary, uh that is much worse than saying, well, Yes, this is suffering. However, I knew when I got into it that there would be some suffering here, and here mm-hmm. it is, and I know why it's happening. There's a comfort just to that. Okay, so we've talked about we've talked about suffering, at least the diagnosis part of it. Um, that here's here's the things that are causing suffering in our lives, and kind of the mechanisms by which it happens. But but now maybe it is time to turn to the practice side of things because we both said this is a this is like a practice that we we do in our own lives um, and a set of tools that we seek to apply and so what are these what are these tools you say okay I, I recognize their suffering and I accept <clears throat> the the Buddhist conception of the causes of that suffering what are the things that I can actually do about it yes uh I have found that the practical side of of Buddhism is is absolutely important. I I do agree with that. Uh, The practical side for me is that I have a daily meditation practice. And uh, I spend about a half an hour every day, sometimes more, meditating. And I try to follow as closely as I can the uh, texts of the Pali Canon that teach meditation as they are interpreted by 
modern scholars who have studied them and who have tried to sort of tease out the meanings of of the texts in in terms of of uh, providing a guide to practice and one of the things that meditation will teach you very very quickly is just how attached your mind is to all kinds of things that you never thought you were attached to before uh, when you sit down and try to focus only on one thing, and for me, it's it's typically the breath. All the time, I find, oh gosh, I'm thinking about this or that or the other thing, and I'm I'm thinking about uh, this chore that I have to do or that appointment that I have to keep or the deadline at work or whatever, and it takes a really long time to settle down in a lot of cases. And I can tell from day to day whether I'm having a more attached or a less attached kind of day, because sometimes I can settle down and pay much closer attention to just the breath and, and not to be uh, running through ruminating on all kinds of other thoughts. And you know, other days, that's uh, all I manage to do. And uh, so even even what might nominally be an unsuccessful, unfocused meditation session is still kind of a lesson in Buddhism, even if it's only a negative lesson, even if it's only, okay, you are really attached to stuff right now. Maybe you should think about that. Uh, because you can't really focus on one thing intently if you are still attached to all the other things and still uh, your mind is, is running to them instead. What's the mechanism for solving the, the problem of suffering via attachment and grasping that's at play here? Because we might just say what you're doing when you're meditating is you're trying to develop your focus. You're trying to say, I want to, I want to make exercise the muscles in my mind that allow me to direct my attention at a specific object or point and hold it there and not get distracted, not have my attention wander off in other directions. It's it's not entirely clear, though, from what you've said, what the relationship is between that as a technique, as a practice, as like a, a skill that you're cultivating through meditation and circumventing the suffering of attachment and grasping and craving. Well, it's one thing to say that the origin of suffering is attachment, and it's quite another thing to actually let go of those attachments. The first is a truth that one might say is is almost analytical in nature. It's almost... Uh, it's almost necessarily true. It's almost true by definition, it appears to me. But to be able to act on it, that's a different matter. That's not a matter of analytical truth. That's a matter of skill. And uh, this is something that I believe in part as a matter of faith, I would say. Uh, it is described as a skill in the canon. But also it's something that has strong parallels in many other areas of life. Meditation is like learning to ride a bicycle or learning to play a piano. It's a skill, and if you practice it more and if you practice it in the right way, you'll get better at it. So uh, 
it's learning how to do the thing that you know you need to be able to do in a way. I, I'll say from my own my own experience. Um, so this is, I mean, one of the hardest parts about getting into meditation is that those first several times when you do it, and it's so impossibly difficult. You know, like the the meditation books say, you know, like you're doing really well if you can maintain focus on your your object of attention, you know, so you're just paying attention to your breath um, for, you know, more than a handful of seconds. And you think, oh, well, that's not, you know, that's that's pretty easy. I can I can pay attention to anything for at least a handful of seconds. And then you try it and you simply can't. Your mind wanders off to everything. You notice an itch. You start thinking about tomorrow. You start remembering a conversation you had, um, and and it's this very it's this very weird experience because it doesn't even feel like you're the one doing it. Like you're not. It's not like you. It's not the experience of getting bored, um, which is. I am going to pay attention to this thing. And as I'm paying attention to it, I'm like, man, it's just not fun to pay attention to it. I'm going to redirect my attention to something that's more engaging. Um, it's, no, it's, a it's not that of, of free association that right. the breath suggests thoughts and the thoughts are not the breath, but you're thinking about the thoughts instead of the breath. And then you go further and further from there. Right. And, and you get this, the very weird experience yeah. of like not even noticing that you've drifted off. Like yes. you just you suddenly realize that I've spent the last several minutes thinking about something else, and you do like how did how did that even happen? And, and this is why I think that uh, one one uh, idea from Buddhism is 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 really you know, resonant with me that you should not think of your thoughts as yourself. Your thoughts are not yourself. Your thoughts are are a process that has no person behind it, has no no uh, sort of spirit that is is pulling the strings from outside of the world. It's not a, it's not a, a, a transcendent being who's acting in this world of matter. It's just matter. And you don't have the kind of control over yourself that you maybe think that you do. Whether you ever arrive at that kind of control or not, it's still a valuable lesson to know that at least for the moment and probably in a lot of the times in my life, that's the way things are. Uh, what can we do about that? Well, we can attempt to cultivate the skill of paying attention. We can attempt to cultivate the skill of, of mindfulness. And this gives us some hope for uh, improvement in, in that area of life that, uh, we can be a little bit more uh, uh, detached, even from our own thoughts, even from our own uh, stream of consciousness, and recognize that this is a thing that a a uh, physical process has produced, and it is uh, it is inherently, in some ways, beyond our control except in some very limited circumstances. The limited circumstances are are the dispositions and the skills that we do have control over. So uh, learning how to expand those, learning how to make those tell, make those count, is is something that's of tremendous importance, therefore. There's also a, a very large, I guess, call it therapeutic value that I have noticed in this, um, or that, and that other people have noticed about me when I'm, so when I'm being most diligent in my practice, like I'm practicing for a decent amount of time each day and I'm doing it 
every day and I'm not missing times, um, I will notice a, it's not, it's not a calmness per se. It's not like I'm just, you know, I'm just super relaxed because if you, if you sit quietly for a while, you, um, it's relaxing or at least it is for me. I think a, a lot of people can find meditation like so boring that it's, they feel it's not relaxing, but uh, I feel like that's just kind of the early stages stick through it and it gets a lot better, but, but it's more that that pull tends to go away. And so I, I remember the first time I did a, I did a three day meditation retreat, which sounds terrifying because you're just, you're going and you're sitting in a room, you wake up in the morning, you just meditate for 45 minutes, you have breakfast, then you meditate until it's lunchtime. Um, eat lunch, meditate, have dinner, meditate, go to bed and do that for two more days. And so you're not, you're not looking at your phone. You're not talking to anyone. You're not even really interacting with anyone, making eye contact, whatever. Um, you are simply meditating when you're not sleeping and eating. And, and the, the weird, the weird thing is like, you said, you said like some meditation says there's value even ones that are bad, that feel bad. Like oh, they, I, you, they I, don't feel I, successful. A, a Buddhist nun on a forum that I've participated in wrote once that unless you have had a meditation session where you have to stop because you are crying, then you have not really been doing it right. You haven't put in enough effort or diligence yet. And so, yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's really stressful because your mind will go back to things that you don't want it to go back to. I mean, it can be very, very difficult. It's not just lying down on a cushion and you know, drifting off. It's it's very much the opposite of that. Well, and it can often, for me, like a bad session is is less about like going to places I don't want to be, and it's more about just being utterly unsuccessful in staying on focus for any length of time. Where I just felt like my mind was wandering the entire time that I was sitting. Um, oh, and, I've had plenty of those too. Oh, and when I, when I go, when I go to the retreats, I will, I've been on, I've been on two of these. Um, and in both cases, there were like entire days that went by where I was like, God, that entire day was wasted because my meditation was just terrible for almost all of it. And, but then what happens is when I, when I leave, when I'm done and I, I head home, I notice a really deep change in my mental state um, and in how I perceive and interact with the world and the people in it. Um, and, and it's a very positive one. Um, and I get the same thing if I am, you know, if I'm meditating on a regular basis on my own, or I've had a particularly successful meditation on in just, you know, like a given day, um, though it's, it's a deeper and longer lasting after a retreat, probably just because I've been doing it for, you know, three days straight. But it's this, it's this really interesting experience that goes back to that, that grasping um, and attachment in that when I interact with the world, I feel like I am, on the one hand, I'm noticing everything in it on a much deeper level than I typically do. And so people people often talk about like, you know, noticing stuff in nature. They'll see like a flower and it looks, you know, profoundly more beautiful than they had ever experienced seeing one before. And it's some of that, but it's more just like I'm I feel present in a way that 
I don't typically. And when, when things happen in the world, like, so driving back from the retreat and someone like cuts me off or, you know, I, something is at home and it's something that like, I would have become frustrated by in the past or, or I'm, you know, I'm working, I go back to work afterwards and I'm using the internet. I'm like writing or I'm, you know, I'm on task. The, the things in the world that would pull my attention away from where I am, from being present. So whether that's like the lure of Twitter or, (laughs) or the person cutting me off that would have like gotten me upset, you know, those things are still there. It's, it's not that I'm not aware of them and it's not that I'm kind of like blase, like I just don't care, but the, the feeling you can kind of feel them like grasping at your attention and just not finding any purchase. This is an opportunity for anger that I am not taking. Yes, exactly. That's, that's an experience that I've, I've also had many times. I have, I have the option to become angry here. And by the same token, I have, I have the option not to be angry. And right now it's up to me. It's, it's my choice because I'm paying attention to how I react to things. So uh, yes. being able to pay attention to how one reacts to things, that's mindfulness. That's what it is. And so it can, it can, if put to that use, if put to the use of, of conquering anger, it can be very effective. And that's where it seems to tie back into the, the core Buddhist insight and theory about the nature and causes of suffering and how you can see it as the meditation is not simply a way to increase your focus to feel less stress um you know or the kind of modern conception of it is like a productivity hack um but but by by helping you to get your mind into that place where you can see you're no longer just like becoming angry but you're seeing here's an opportunity for me to become angry and I can choose to take it or not I think that's when you become more aware of how much of the suffering and stress in your own life is because you're jumping at those opportunities or you're choosing to chase down desires wants and so on convincing yourself their needs um, and and so when your mind is in a state where you can see it and you can make the choice, you can see that you don't need to you don't need to chase down these blind alleyways anymore. Like that's that's I think the insight that comes from it, in addition to just the like, you know, clarity and focus and calmness and whatever else, is is that insight into like the nature of the choices that you're making in your life and and choosing them more mindfully, more consciously. Um, and that I think has that that effect then of undercutting a lot of these causes of suffering because now you're seeing that like I can choose not to cling to this thing I can choose not to grasp this thing I can still enjoy this thing I can find like tremendous beauty and joy in these experiences in you know in these products in whatever but I'm like kind of I'm I'm more conscious of my relationship to them and so I can. I can engage with them in a healthier way. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's, that's just about it. I mean, that is, uh, that is the essential uh, to be able to 
have a kind of, of meta rationality about the choices that otherwise might just arise spontaneously to, to say, I, I can step back from this situation because I recognize that not everything that my mind wants to do is uh, necessarily a, a condition that I want to own. It's not necessarily a place I want to end up. Uh, and uh, that's something that I, I, I really strongly have had the sense that meditation strengthens that kind of reflective ability elsewhere in life. Definitely. Now, given, given those benefits, what's the point of Buddhism? And I guess what, what I mean by that is um, we can, so the, the meditation practice of like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my attention on my breath. And when it wanders, I'm going to bring it back to my breath and so on. Um, and there are a lot of different, so there are lots of different meditation techniques, but that's the one that, you know, seems to be the most popular among Western Buddhists um, and the kind of the mindfulness movement that there's nothing inherently like you could, you could reject Buddhist notions of suffering. You could reject Buddhist notions of rebirth of, you know, the nature of the self, all of that. And you could still do that simple act of paying attention to the breath and bringing your attention back to the breath. And from everything you and I have just said, you'll gain huge benefit from it. And those benefits don't seem to depend again on these Buddhist priors. So what's the value for you in the the Buddhist ideas, belief system, religion, faith, whatever you want to call it, on top of all of that versus just saying, hey, this sounds great. I'm going to have a half hour mindfulness meditation practice every day and occasionally go on a retreat. Well, I mean, there are lots of different ways to try to make sense of the experiences that one might have while meditating. And even even you know, larger than that, there are lots of different ways to meditate. There are, there are only some of them that are Buddhist ways of meditation, and there are ways of meditation outside of that. But uh, Buddhism is, first of all, a specific set of meditation uh, exercises or or techniques, and second, it's a lot of other things. And the other things are, it is said, in harmony with and compatible with and reinforcing of the meditation techniques. Buddhism is not just meditation; it's also it's also a, a system of ethics. It's also a system of of uh, wisdom of of belief about our place in the universe and what to do about it so uh, people can realize benefits from meditation inside or outside of buddhism they can realize benefits from meditation that are are religious or not uh, but the particular way of making sense of meditation that is distinctively buddhist is that it integrates the meditation into a set of ethical commitments and a set of of uh, one might say metaphysical commitments that uh, that uh, help explain why we're here, what we're doing in life, what what the point of all of this is. And so uh, I found that additional 
aspect of Buddhism to explain meditation pretty well and to explain uh, something as, as difficult as that is uh, no small feat. Someone listening to our now hour of conversation about Buddhism and is maybe interested in exploring it further, where would you direct them to go? And and let me ask for two answers. Um, the first is they want to they want to explore more like the the found the ideas of Buddhism, the Buddhism as philosophy, as ethics, as religion, and so on, like the the, these ideas. Um, and the other, so a recommendation for that. And the other is a recommendation for someone who says, I want to start a meditation practice. I want to try this thing. Um, is there a particular book you'd recommend? Do you like, do you think apps are useful? Is there one that you'd recommend? Like where would someone go in that direction? All right. Well, one of my favorite authors is, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Um, he's written a bunch of different books, uh, one that focuses specifically on meditation and is short and to the point is called With Each and Every Breath. It's uh, not going to give a full picture of of Buddhist ethics or, or, or wisdom, but it will definitely give enough to get someone started on meditation. And then they can they can move on from there if they want. Uh one of his other books is The Wings to Awakening, which was actually the the first book that our our book group uh, read. It has a reputation of being a a pretty difficult text, of being a a text that uh, makes a lot of intellectual demands on on the reader. But I think if someone has uh, listened up to this point, I think they're probably up to it. Uh, uh, I I would definitely encourage. Uh, people to to seek out those two books uh, as far as meditation apps i use one called insight timer i like it because it's really uh customizable in terms of uh what type of of uh meditation and what length you'd like to go for do you want uh, a guided meditation do you want a silent meditation uh do you want there to be intervals where you pause or where uh you are at least alerted that 10 minutes or 15 minutes have gone by um i like it also because it's got metrics about uh how how long you've been at it and uh, you know how many days you have had consecutive sessions things like that although one thing i should probably specify uh, here is that i've never ever heard any meditation teacher say that meditation is a contest it's not a competition it's not uh, uh, he who does it the most is the best it's not uh, it's not a, a kind of uh, uh, you know, lifting contest. You know, you're not you're not going for that. Uh, on the contrary, what I've much more often heard is start very very gently. If you only have three minutes of effort to put in, if it's a good three minutes, then great. If you want to go for longer, then go for longer. But uh, but be gentle with your own mind and don't try to force it. Uh, trying to trying to force yourself into a, a spiritual place where you think you're really supposed to be is not what meditation in this tradition is about. 
you're supposed to be watching your mind and watching what it does and learning from that rather than forcing it to be one thing or forcing it to be another. So even when you find yourself very, very far from your breath and for the last 15 minutes you've been thinking about work, recognize that. Take a moment and realize that you have had that kind of mind-wandering episode. And, and once you do recognize that, then very gently come back to the practice and forgive yourself because this is something that happens to everyone. This is how minds work. This is how one might say life in samsara works. This is how life in this world is. And uh, so uh, the sooner you recognize that, the sooner you can move on to lessening your suffering.